So I'm excited about uh, having a, a commitment across the administration to good science, good data, good analysis, and frankly, the um, elevation of the White House science advisor to cabinet-level status is a signal of that, and, and an important one that uh, is a promise really across uh, America that science is back and we're going to build on the best evidence we can establish and uh, drive policy from there. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our Environmental Economics Program and the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. On January 20th, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th President of the United States, along with Kamala Harris as Vice President. Now, changes from one administration to another in the United States are always significant, but sometimes the changes are not so dramatic as when the same political party retains the White House, although the last time that that happened was the transition in 1988 from Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush. But I, for one, do not recall a transfer of power that has represented such dramatic changes in terms of both style and substance as this change from the former Trump administration to the current Biden administration. One of the areas, among many others, where this is the case is the realm of environmental energy and natural resource policy, our topic in these podcasts. And today we're very fortunate to have with us someone who is exceptionally well qualified to talk about this change. And that's my longtime colleague and friend, Daniel Esty the Hill House professor at Yale University with primary appointments at Yale's Environment School and its law school. Dan, welcome to Environmental Insights. A pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm very interested to hear your impressions about environmental policy, given all of your experience as well as your training. Uh, thinking both about what we experienced in the Trump years and even more so what we might expect during the Biden years, but before we get into that, our listeners are always interested to find out about you, about how you came to be where you are. So let's start. Where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in uh, Connecticut and in Massachusetts. So I uh, spent elementary school in northwestern Connecticut and then high school in Concord, Massachusetts. And then you went on to Harvard College, not very far away. I went on to Harvard College. I uh, was a little bit surprised to end up only 15 miles from uh, my high school in Concord, Massachusetts, but went to Harvard College. And then from there, uh, spent a couple of years uh, in the UK, was uh, at Oxford, and uh, then ended up at uh, law school uh, back in Connecticut. So you're a very modest fellow. So first of all, I'll say that at Harvard College, where, by the way, you studied economics, I'm pleased to say, um, you graduated summa cum laude, which is extremely rare at Harvard. It is the cream of the cream that graduate with those honors. And you said you spent some time at Oxford. That was as a Rhodes Scholar, I believe. That's true. All true. And then you were at Yale Law School, received your JD. What was your first job out of law school? I went to work for uh, a Washington, D.C. law firm called Arnold and Porter mm -hmm. and started out doing a lot of regulatory work, uh, including, frankly, a lot of 
trade regulatory work, international trade work, but did a, a series of pro bono cases that related to uh, various environmental issues. So ended up representing a consortium of environmental groups. And it was a good way for a young lawyer to get himself into court, which otherwise mm-hmm. uh, in the paid cases would be the senior partners. But I ended up arguing a couple of cases in federal court uh, on a series of matters related to efforts to stop whaling and to have the United States government impose uh, sanctions on hmm. Iceland and Japan that were continuing to whale in violation of international agreements. That's interesting. So it was your pro bono work that actually moved you into environment. Exactly. In fact, uh, what happened was I uh, had in this consortium of environmental groups uh, the World Wildlife Fund, then run by a guy named Bill Riley. And uh, <laughs> when he was named head of the EPA, he asked me if I would join him as his special assistant. And that's how I ended up uh, jumping out of the practice of law, frankly, never to return, and uh, went off into uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Now, did you go also to the Peterson Institute for International Economics after that, before that? or I did. I, that- um, I came out of government uh, in 1993 and mm-hmm. was uh, awarded uh, an international affairs fellowship from the Council on Foreign Relations. So I had some funding. And uh, at the time, Fred Bergsten ran that Peterson uh-huh. Institute, and he right. invited me to uh, make that my home and my platform. And uh, it worked out very well. I was able to produce my first big uh, written project, my first book called Greening the Gat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it uh, set me off on a track that I've never turned back from, which is really thinking about environmental problems uh, from a policy perspective and uh, trying to uh, argue for new ways to look at some of the challenges that we continue to face, quite frankly. So it must be that when you were at EPA during the George H.W. Bush administration, that that is when you and I first met, because that's when I was doing work with Senator Senators Worth and the late Senator John Hines at Project 88, and I was spending a lot of time at the White House and over at EPA. That's exactly right. I remember distinctly um, having uh, not thought so much about this idea of uh, economic instruments and a a different kind of approach to regulation moving beyond the traditional command and control, but you had really done a great deal with Senators uh, Worth and Heinz to sharpen the focus on those uh, alternative pathways, and uh, I have to say I I learned from you then and continue to learn from you now and uh, continue to believe that there's lots of opportunities to do environmental protection in new and different and better ways, Uh, and really moving beyond the command and control era that launched Mm -hmm. America on its environmental efforts uh, in the late 60s and into the 70s, and and frankly, continue to provide important support for Mm -hmm. our push. But I do think there's um, been a growing evidence that other tools, including information strategies and, frankly, uh, economic incentives more directly, Uh, would be helpful as we try to get done some of the big changes that we now know we need to do, uh, most notably the decarbonization of our economy to respond Mm -hmm. to climate change. Now, from the Peterson Institute, just to wrap this up, we don't want to leave off the fact that then you went and joined the faculty at Yale. Is that right? I um, Yes, on the basis of that uh, Greening the Gat book, which um, was uh, sort of the first big 
push to say that the uh, promise of international trade would not be realized if you underattended to issues of environmental harm that might also be uh, happening at the same moment. Uh, I got a call from Yale, uh, from uh, the dean of the Yale Law School, uh, the famous Guido Calabresi, saying mm-hmm. that a position had been created joint between the law school and the environment school, and, and would I be interested? Perfectly suited for you, and you're perfectly suited for it. You know, before we um, turn to policy, which I want to do, uh, one thing I'll add to your sterling resume uh, is that we are both longtime proud members of the board of directors of Resources for the Future, the Washington think tank. And that is a place that you and I get to see each other a couple of times a year, at least in non-pandemic times. Right. And um, I think we both find that extremely valuable as a way to both contribute some of our own thinking and emerging uh, kind of push for new uh, ways to approach problems, but also to learn from each other and from an outstanding board. It really represents the best of what think tanks can be and, frankly, in the environmental arena should be. Yeah, I thoroughly agree with you. So you you really have brought a superb background to the issues we're here to discuss. So let's turn to the situation in which we find ourselves, the change from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Um, I don't recall precisely, but I'm guessing that you were rather critical of a number of the Trump administration's moves in the environmental realm. Can you say anything positive about that administration's actions in the environmental and energy realm? Or is that too challenging to think about? As you are quite right in suggesting, I found a good bit of what uh, the Trump team did to be really uh, very much steps backward across a a range of issues that I care about. And I do think uh, if anything could be said, um, perhaps it is that it reminded those of us who care about environmental protection that we need to demonstrate why the things we're doing matter. Because Mm -hmm. I think it was uh, surprisingly easy for Trump to make an argument that somehow we didn't need protection from environmental harms. We didn't need action on climate change. And that so many people seem to think that was um, a reasonable suggestion was distressing to me. And I think for all of us who care about the issues of climate change and of air pollution and water quality, it was a big reminder that we needed to be more careful. We needed to be more uh, rigorous and really sharpen our thinking and present a, a case to the public, not just to the policy world, that was compelling. Yeah, it's striking that not only was the Trump administration representing a tremendous departure in many policy realms from the previous Obama administration, which isn't, I suppose, terribly surprising given the change of party, but a tremendous change from the George W. Bush administration, let alone the George H. W. Bush administration, which were the former, the latter being much more moderate, and even the George W. Bush administration not being as retrograde and extreme on environmental matters as the Trump years were. Well, I think that is one of the most distressing things about the unfolding of policy over the last several decades. And I do think uh, we saw it on display in the course of the handover on January 20th from uh, Mm -hmm. Trump to President Biden, where you had the three former presidents, including uh, W. Bush, along with Obama and Clinton, uh, doing events together. 
Mm -hmm. uh, celebrating what is the great tradition of the passing of uh, the mantle of leadership in America. And President Trump declined to be present. Uh, and I do think that uh, breaking of norms uh, on the way out the door was a, a beautiful emblem of four years of norm breaking that, um, you know, for some of us was deeply distressing. I do think you point out that uh, if we go back, uh, as we should, um, you know, 30 years to the George H.W. Bush administration, you also find a moment now seemingly very distant when the parties work together on a number of these issues. And, uh, you know, I, I think there is uh, hope, but I know that it's a tough moment that we might get back to a, a time, perhaps not this year or next, but at some point soon, when more of the agenda does move on a bipartisan basis. And uh, that was my formative time in government. And uh, I do think it, it is enormously valuable if you want to make transformative change happen to do so on a basis that both parties come along. Because as you know, Rob, our political system is structured to make it very hard for one party to do something when another party opposes. Right. So it's extremely tough to do the kind of things that you and I know we need to do in terms of transformation of the energy foundation of our society if one party is perceived to be putting it down the throats of the other. So I uh, very much hope we can, and you and I think about this all the time in our work with resources for the future, mm -hmm. how could we establish uh, some of the elements that need to be done on a more bipartisan basis? I mean, the dramatic change over time, Dan, that you're describing is well quantified, as you well know, by the fact that the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, when they passed within the House of Representatives, I think it was something like 94% of Democrats and 92% of Republicans, and then fast forward to the Waxman-Markey legislation in the Obama years, focusing on climate change, passed with about 90, 92% of Democrats and something like 4% of Republicans. Just dramatic shift over those years. So, Rob, you brought me to one of my favorite um, tests uh, of how people gauge these issues, which your audience can use as a cocktail party when we ever get back to cocktail parties, uh, trivia <laughs> question. And that is, what was the final vote in the United States Senate on those 1990 Clean Air Act amendments? And I won't press you, although I bet you're close to the answer if you don't know it precisely. It was 89 to 11. And yeah. uh, it was, yeah. uh, you know, votes breaking off both sides. I think it was five and six. Mm -hmm. So it was about equal percents Democrat and right. Republican votes in favor. And it was a different era. But the key, as you're probably hinting at, is that when you have both parties overwhelmingly vote, as they did for that 1990 Clean Air Act, then they're invested in making it work rather mm -hmm. than showing how the other party screwed up. And as a result, over the following years, and I was there at the EPA trying to implement this new statute, mm -hmm. but there was a lot we got wrong, which is mm -hmm. always the case when you do something big and transformative. Sure. But both parties worked to clean it up. And that's what I think we haven't seen in recent years. And that's what uh, I'm hoping President uh, Biden, with his long tradition in the Senate, with his commitment uh, to being a guy that celebrates and doesn't denigrate compromise, and his willingness to work across party lines uh, might move us back toward. So, so let's get to that. Uh, let's get to the heart of the matter. You know, wh what will be the impacts of the November election, both the change in the presidency and the changes in the House, and of course, 
the U.S. Senate on the path of environmental policy, including but not necessarily limited to climate change policy, over the next two to four years. How, what do you see happening? So we've already seen a tremendous amount with uh, President Biden's day one executive orders. So a whole number of things that the Trump team had uh, pulled back uh, in terms of what the Obama position was, are pushed the other way again. And I think we see that in you know most striking terms in rejoining the Paris 2015 climate change agreement. But you also see it in the personnel being appointed. You know, mm-hmm. what a big signal of commitment to send John Kerry out as our climate envoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an enormously important place to put Gina McCarthy, former head mm-hmm. of the EPA, but now as the domestic climate change czar. And it gives meaning to what President Biden has promised will be an all of government approach to climate change and frankly to advancing sustainability more generally. And I think that, you know, the appointees across government are signals of the commitment to a a sustainability priority and to climate change uh, at the front of that list. But uh, Michael Regan at the EPA, Jennifer Granholm at the Department of Energy, uh, and even people like Janet Yellen at Treasury are already being highlighted for their commitments to action on climate change, although, of course, Janet Yellen's primary role is in the realm of finance and and the Treasury Department, and Pete Buttigieg at the Department of Transportation, again, highlighting not just the building of roads, but thinking about how all of the infrastructure investments we need to make can be re-geared around a move towards a a low-carbon future. Janet Yellen had a long history previously in government of, although she was in financial roles such as at CEA, of deep involvement and very, very greatly interested in climate change policy. I've heard this repeatedly from my colleague and friend who you know well, Joe Aldi, um, who worked with her at the time. I think, um, in fact, and this is uh, something that we might you know, celebrate is that for any of these cabinet roles, there are a number of contenders at the very you know, last stage. And I think Janet Yellen was picked in part because she was um, able to demonstrate mm-hmm. that she knew the, the basic brief of the Treasury Department, but also had uh, great sensitivity and past leadership on climate change mm-hmm. and a real understanding of what it would take to move uh, America towards a more sustainable future. And you mentioned John Kerry. That his appointment strikes me as just perfect for what's needed, because typically the head of the negotiating team for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is someone who has to really be in the weeds. Someone like Todd Stern in previous years under the Obama administration was ideal for that. But we now have the Paris Agreement negotiated. What's needed are really diplomatic skills, someone that can go one-on-one, not just with the heads of other negotiating teams, but with the ministers of environment, the ministers of finance, even the heads of state of other governments. And for that, John Kerry, former Secretary of State and former Senator, of course, strikes me as absolutely ideal. I agree with you, and I think what you see with that pick is somebody who can work the politics of this issue yes. and frankly yes. can work those politics internationally where yes. there's a big ambition to have the world community go to Glasgow and the conference of the parties uh, to the 1992 framework convention on climate change. That's the official name of that annual gathering. And uh, of course put off in uh, 2020 as a result of the pandemic, but there'll be a big push as we approach that November gathering in, in Scotland to uh, really have countries demonstrate 
renewed commitment and increased ambition to uh, yes. speed up the pace at which decarbonization takes place. And that's not a matter of technical details. We're not going to renegotiate the Paris Agreement. But I think John Kerry is the one who could say, well, the U.S. is back in this agreement, serious of purpose in terms of its own strategy for emissions reduction. And uh, he will be able to tell that story with conviction mm-hmm. to the leaders across the world. I think he'll tell it to people who uh, uh, may not want to hear it fully in some cases, but I think he will do so with clarity. And he'll also be able to bring the story back home, having spent many years in the United States Senate, and uh, talk through why it makes sense for us to take action internationally and domestically, which is always, of course, what's required for mm-hmm. real success. Now, you mentioned Gina McCarthy. That that appointment also strikes me as ideal. And I, and I say that because uh, submitting the papers on Inauguration Day to rejoin the Paris Agreement and then that happening as it will on February 19th, that's the easy part. The hard part, of course, is coming up with a new nationally determined contribution, a quote-unquote pledge, of what the U.S. will actually do, uh, something that's sufficiently ambitious to satisfy some domestic uh, green groups and sufficiently ambitious to satisfy some of our allies, but also credible to be achievable with reasonably anticipated policy actions. My understanding is that Gina McCarthy's job is going to be to try to coordinate that across the entire government. Exactly right. And, and I think she is uh, going to be good at corralling the different parts of the government. I think they've identified, you know, 15 different departments and, uh, and independent authorities that need to play some role on this. And Gina's going to be out there every day saying, OK, EPA, what are you doing? And then, you know, the next minute she'll be on the phone with Pete Buttigieg saying, here's what we'll need from the Department of Transportation. Right. And I do think uh, that's going to be quite critical. And frankly, Rob, one of the things that I think you and I are going to celebrate in the coming weeks and months is the shift in the debate from whether we need to decarbonize to how to do it. Mm -hmm. And this is something, of course, our colleagues at Resources for the Future have been thinking about. Uh, I myself have been working with a group of almost 100 scholars across the country to create something called the Zero Carbon Action Plan. Mm -hmm. And it lays out pathways that America might follow to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 and does so at a relatively granular way, uh, looking at six different sectors with economic modeling of what it would take in the way of investments and uh, what we can expect in the way of uh, job effects and uh, economic growth effects. And I think getting into that detail and really starting to work on what's required is what is going to be very exciting. And again, I think there's a good team now in place to help move that discussion forward. And you use the word celebrate. I think it's really the right word because more broadly than for climate change, whether we're talking about climate change, we're talking about addressing this terrible pandemic, we now once again have in place an administrative team that listens to science, that goes on the basis of evidence, that respects expertise. That's important not just for climate change or COVID, it's important for a healthy democracy. Absolutely essential. If you aren't dealing with the facts, you are going to be caught out eventually. And I think, uh, you know, America has suffered terribly by having an administration that uh, from its first day thought that they existed in a fact-free zone. And that has disserved our country enormously, short, middle, and long term. So I'm excited about uh, having a a commitment 
across the administration to good science, good data, good analysis, and frankly, the um, elevation of the White House science advisor to cabinet-level status is a signal of that, and and an important one that uh, is a promise really across uh, America that science is back and we're going to build on the best evidence we can establish and uh, drive policy from there. So, you know, many of our uh, listeners to this podcast are in other parts of the world. And although they may be aware that we now have a new administration, that the administration's party, the Democratic Party, controls both the House and the Senate, they may not be aware of the specific issue that it's a one-vote majority in the Senate, and for various reasons, a 60 to 40, a 10-vote margin is nowadays required for passing significant legislation. Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts. If you want to comment on that or on budget reconciliation measures or whatever, what's your thinking, Dan, in terms of the possibilities of major climate legislation over the next two years, let's say? So, Rob, I would say your analysis uh, is, if anything, uh, too uh, kind to the Democrats. Mm -hmm. It's really a 50-50 Senate split between the Democrats and Republicans. And among the 50 on the Democratic side are several senators led by Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who have indicated some degree in the past of skepticism. Uh, about climate change uh, policies that would be burdensome to the constituencies they represent. And uh, Joe Manchin is not alone. We've got uh, two new senators, one just elected from Arizona, both Mm -hmm. of whom also have signaled some hesitation. So it's going to require real leadership. And that's where, again, I'm actually quite optimistic that Joe Biden is going to rise to the moment. And I do think, um, you know, the Obama administration had a very powerful majority early on and was unable to get that Waxman-Markey bill uh, through the Senate. In fact, it was never even voted on. Even and though I, they controlled 59 they, votes, 57 they, Democrats and two independents who caucused. You would have thought had the ability to do it. What it says to me, and this is where, you know, the work that you and I do is so important, it says that the policy framework being advanced wasn't the right one. And, uh, you know, I thought at the time that the uh, the legislation proposed had uh, a complexity to it that might unravel. And I think as time passed, uh, it became very hard to sell the, the story of that pathway to decarbonization to the senators representing coal states, some of whom were Democrats. So I think we're going to need to see a a new toolbox, a new set of approaches to uh, the strategy of moving to clean Mm -hmm. energy. And I'm excited about that because I think it offers the promise, not the certainty, but the possibility of bringing together a broader coalition across party lines. So given the challenges in the U.S. Senate over the next two years, until there will be another set of elections, of course, If it is the case that major explicit climate legislation, you know, Mr. or President Biden's $2 trillion over four years, for example, if that proves infeasible, what do you think about the possibility of including some some green aspects, some climate aspects, either in the economic stimulus package, which will surely be forthcoming, Uh, and or in an infrastructure bill, which does seem to have bipartisan support. I expect you're going to see the major opportunities uh, for legislative action 
come in exactly those two places. Okay. So I think there will be an infrastructure bill. I think there will be significant elements of it designed to lay the foundation for the transition to uh, a clean energy economy of the future. And I expect it will have things like a, a build out of charging stations to make it easier for electric vehicles to take root in America. I think it'll have a commitment uh, to bike lanes and to walkability uh, investments in our urban areas. Um, I think, by the way, it will also include significant commitments of resources to really get at the uh, racial disparities that arise in, uh, in terms of pollution exposure. And I do think there will be some of this as well in the economic stimulus. And so I'm mm -hmm. hopeful that you're going to see some aspects of uh, the environmental agenda moved by legislation. But I would tell you that I'm also excited about the potential for further action uh, within the existing authority that the executive mm -hmm. branch has. And I'll just give you one big example that I think is uh, potentially significant. And that's the possibility of having the new administration, uh, especially a new Securities and Exchange Commission, mm -hmm. require some number, some uh, framework of mandatory reporting by public companies on sustainability performance, uh, mm -hmm. what's sometimes called the environment social governance structure. Uh, and that's a, a topic that I've been working on, and I think it uh, has great potential. If the private companies of the world have to tell us how they're doing on these issues, uh, and there is an ability with that information for investors to either put money into the companies that they feel aligned with or pull it back from ones that they believe are holding us back from a sustainable future, I think that can provide a significant non-regulatory mm -hmm. uh, incentive <clears throat> for changed behavior. Which would move corporate governance in the United States closer to the nature and some of the specifics of corporate governance structure in the European Union. I think so. And of course, this whole idea of sustainability reporting is uh, further ahead in Europe. We can anticipate in the first quarter of uh, 2021, the uh, you know, next couple of months, mm -hmm. a new European Union uh, ESG disclosure uh, directive coming out from the European Commission. And uh, again, this is a topic I've been working on. I've just brought out a new book uh, published uh, a couple of months ago by Paul Grave McMillan called Values at Work, Sustainable Investing and ESG Reporting. And I think in there, for those who are, of your listeners who are interested, mm -hmm. you can dig into some of the details about how this is going to work, some of the challenges, but also the potential for this really becoming a significant point of leverage for moving society towards a greater focus on sustainability. With that, I'm going to have to bring it to a close because we've run out of time. We could have gone on and I would have enjoyed it for two hours more, although I'm sure you have other things to do, Dan. Um, but, with, but let me just thank you again for having taken time to join us today. Rob, my pleasure. And thank you for bringing the uh, issues you bring to that audience and helping make sure that we've got a, a wider set of folks across our country and around the world who are really digging into these issues with a firm foundation of solid analytics, good information, and the best data available. Well, that's much, much appreciated. So uh, thanks again to our guest today, Daniel Esty the Hill House professor at Yale University with appointments both at Yale's Environment School and its law school. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening.
Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.